Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Um, a lot has gone on the last couple of weeks. I want to put some of it in perspective. And uh, we, of course, as always, welcome your comments. Let me start with um, my trying to put in perspective last night um, on Fox News on uh, the Martha McCallum show. I was trying to answer the question, what do we make of, you know, the president's remarks in Las Vegas? And I didn't particularize them so much as to try to put in context his remarks there and the remarks and visits over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Lou, let's play that clip. The president and the first lady, they have been to Texas, they have been to Florida, they have been to Puerto Rico, they have been to Las Vegas. They have seen misery, they have seen suffering of human beings, they have held their hands, they have hugged them, they have seen the carnage uh, and its consequences in Las Vegas. When they go to bed tonight, what effect does this have on them? I remember a book I read in college, uh, and it was, it, was, it was a theology book, and it said if you had an ears attuned enough to hear all the suffering of the world at once, it would overwhelm you. Well, the Trumps have had a pretty good portion of the suffering of the world, at least of America, in the last few weeks. And they have absorbed it very well and presented themselves very well. I'm, I, as one American, am very proud of them. And um, I, 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 I admire what they have done. I admire their composure. And I, I imagine this is for drawing them closer, but I cannot fathom what they are thinking about, what effect this will have, the cumulative effect of all they have seen. People should have some real empathy for them, such as the empathy they have shown to the people uh, in those four places. Yeah. Um, again, thoughts in process here. Just trying to get my brain around the whole thing. Um, the book I was referring to, uh, Chris, I think I've mentioned it to you before. It's called uh, The Lord. And it's by a, a Italian theologian named Romano Guardini. And it's a very thick book, long, 600 pages and um, small print, as I remember, even, <laughs> even with the young eyes. Um, and, and, and one of the things he says, at least as I remember it, is that if we could hear all the suffering of the world at once, as God does, uh, as the Lord does, uh, it would crush us, would overwhelm us. Now, certainly, you know, uh, there's, there's a, in, in many ways, the life of the present, the first lady is a, is a comfortable life, cosseted life, fly on Air Force One people waiting on you, and so on. Nevertheless, it has to take its toll to have visited and seen and talked to people in Texas, in Florida, in Puerto Rico, uh, in Las Vegas. Um, thinking, I guess, particularly of Mrs. Trump. I, I know watching Mrs. Bennett watch the TV uh, as you know, someone interviews a, a widow or a widower or um, you know, a, a, a brave first responder. Um, her emotional reaction to it. But it, if, if she were there, like Melania, I think it would just, as Guardini said, almost overwhelm her just because of the, of the deep empathy of the woman. And, and in that way, she's like many women and, and, and some men as well. Um, I also said about the president, I don't know, kind of, I don't know if I fumbled it or not, but I said I thought he achieved a kind of eloquence in his statement of, uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, not because he read his prepared remarks so perfectly, because he read them kind of imperfectly. It's not his style to be <clears throat> that kind of uh, eloquent with the words where you don't see any space between the words as written and the person. 
he is is forcing himself to do those words and only those words and not the spontaneous Donald Trump that we're used to. He's a rough and ready New York guy, and I love the spontaneity. I, I can even live with a lot of the tweets, not all of them. But, um, you know, that informal sort of gruff, rough and ready style is, is, is what, is what we're used to. Um, you know, he's there in Puerto Rico and he's talking and talking straight and says, well, you've blown a hole in our budget. And of course, the liberal media gets all over him. Uh, and then he starts throwing p- paper towels around, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a, like a game show. Uh, yeah. Like host, he was shooting you know. basketballs. Yeah. What? He was like he was shooting basketballs. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's the you know, that's Trump we know. Then he goes to Las Vegas and gives these remarks, as he did in some of the other places. And they're very thoughtful, beautifully written. Uh, we are he's standing there with the first responders and the cops and everybody. He says, we are surrounded by heroes. And I thought of uh, Henry V at Agincourt, you know, we few, we band of brothers. Uh, <clears throat> and I give him credit for staying within the boundaries of the speech the parameters of the talk, the, the language that was put there for him. Uh, and, he, and he kind of gets extra credit for not being fluid and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, voluble uh, in, his, uh, in his speech. Chris, any comment on that? Yeah, I think you touched on something important here. In, in some instances, there are some circumstances where there are not the right words. You know, there is no matter... The, the writer, the speechwriter, whoever it is, some, sometimes you just can't put words on paper to respond to some of these incidents. And you can tell that he's really trying hard not to break out into the traditional Trump, which is the campaign Trump, the off the cuff, you know, says what he thinks, brash, sometimes brash Trump. Uh, but he's really trying to be calm and sober in the moment. And I think, um, I think the American people respect that. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence that while these catastrophes are happening, uh, not to put a political lens on it, but his approval rating is ticking up um, yeah. all, all this these past several weeks. But I think that's because the American people are appreciating this. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. The, the eloquence is not natural. The use of those words and phrasing is not natural for him. So people appreciate the effort, right, to do it right uh, and to say it and, and to say it right. Let's uh, let's start there. I want to talk about Puerto Rico and some of the other things. But let's start in Las Vegas. First of all, we have now all heard the sounds uh, of Las Vegas. So as you listen to that, I think it is a natural, normal reaction to say, can't we do anything about that? Can't, can't we stop that? Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but of course it's, it's appropriate to say, how can we stop something like this? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I believe from the time it started something like 10.09 at night, it was an hour before the police were in that, in that room. Right. Uh, um, no, no criticism there. It's just you have to locate where it's coming from. Um, you know, uh, figure how to do how to do this, how to get there, et cetera. But I, th- I think that's right. I think there was a security guard who got there much earlier, and um, the killer, the murderer, fired through the door at the security guard. I guess wounded them in the wounded them in the leg. My facts right here. Yeah, and I, I had read that um, in these you know catastrophic events, the Las Vegas police 
are trained not to move all their troops or forces, police at, at one spot. Um, partly because, you know, maybe it's a decoy or not, but also because they were getting so many calls of people saying, Oh, I think it's coming from here. I think it's coming from here. Yeah. I think it's coming from yeah. here. So yeah. they had to send people all over to try to pinpoint this. So yeah, it was yeah. about an hour before they identified exactly the room it was coming from. Right. Understandable. Um, it's not like the, um, the Columbine shooting where you knew exactly where it was. Um, you didn't know exactly where it was in the school, but you knew it was in the school and, and there was a gunman in there. Um, but, but the point I want to make is this, um, by the way, <clears throat> take out that last sentence, whatever the, um, the actions and motion, uh, whatever the actions and, and efforts of the police there getting to the killer's room, you saw lots of cops and lots of other people on the ground putting themselves at risk by, um, helping people get out by covering people by someone I saw on TV last night being carried by a, by a, an off-duty police officer. Uh, tremendous, tremendous heroism to, for, to those who say the country is going to hell. Look at the evidence that it's not in the actions of those, uh, of those heroes. But, but let me come back to, can't we do something about this? Maybe we can, maybe we can't. Um, um, I have a I have a very simple kind of pedestrian question. Can we use technology, perhaps, to to do this? Can we somehow pinpoint where this is? Uh, can we get a drone up there with a weapon um, uh, once we locate it? Um, does the state of the art not dictate or not enable us to do something better than run, get in the elevator, or run up the stairs? Uh, you know, nineteen thirties, nineteen forties style. Um, that's a question I have. Have you seen any treatment of this? Uh, how, not in terms of weapons and guns and you know automatics and so on, but just using the technology to somehow more quickly um, disable the shooter. You know, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, the U.S. military has all sorts of technology, whether it's infrared or things like that, to detect where heat you know heat from the barrel of a gun. Um, where it's coming from, but I haven't heard that really talked about in these types of instances yet. Let's talk about the weapons thing in a minute, but but let's stay with this. Uh, it may turn out that um, <clears throat> it's unfathomable that we will not know the motives uh, behind this. We are searching, you know, everything, every disk, every hard drive, every thing this guy has written, said to his girlfriend, all his friends, everyone who knows him. So far, they're not turning up much. It's absurd. It's a blank slate. It's a, it's a, there's nothing, it doesn't seem at this, at this moment that there's much there. Um, fair enough as a conclusion right now? I think so. Okay. So what do we conclude from that? We conclude from that that the uh, mind of man is a mystery. You and I have uh, wrestled with this phrase a few times before. I've asked you to look it up. We can't find it. Is that right? Not even the devil himself knows the mind of man. <laughs> Right. I asked you since you're Protestant, I'm Catholic, and you know the Bible better than I do. Is that in there? It's not. But I guess there is, a, is, I was doing a little research very early this morning, there is a line in the book of Kings that says, only God knows the heart of man. Right? You know that line. Right. <clears throat> so by deduction. <laughs> if only no God knows, knows, no one only else Only God knows. knows. Therefore, Satan doesn't. But man doesn't know the heart of man. We may never find a motive in this one. There's some things we just say, that's it, you know, that that's it. 
we 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 are we, we have rationalist prejudice here. There's got to be an explanation for this. Maybe there isn't. Maybe there isn't. You know, you look at the pictures, and the guy is 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 kind of am I using the right adverb here? Depressingly normal looking. You know what I mean? Yeah. Looks like a million guys you'd pass on the street or see in a casino, doesn't he? I mean, he just looks like. 60s year year old guy with a you know a beard or you know growing growing beard and a ordinary is is that fair is that right I yeah I think is. that's right I mean if if he had done if this shooting had taken place inside a casino and you were you know you saw him and you're asked to identify him there's not much you could really say to stand out you just look like a normal older white guy nondescript older white guy you know with uh, hair in his hair in his face um yeah so we may not we may not know because. We may not know, but the, but but what we do know is this: somewhere in that brain, in that mind, there was a trigger, and that's the trigger we should be we should be worried about. The trigger in the mind of man. Can we do something about that? And it's hard to know. It's really hard to know. Now let's deal with the weapons thing. I think, by the way, I think the weapons argument, the liberal argument. You know, let's take the guns. You know, I, I, by the way, I have no opinion about what do they call it? The bump? Bump stock. Bump, the bump stock. Fine. Get rid of it. I don't care. I, you know, I, I don't know anything about it. I don't care. They want to debate it. Does it do any good? Does do real hunters and people who carry guns care about that? I, I don't think they care much, but if somebody wants to do something about that. This is where you convert a semi-automatic weapon to an automatic weapon. Fine. Um, other than that, it seems to me just the evidence that's coming forward, this amazing Washington Post piece by, is it Leah Labrescu? By the way, does that last name sound familiar to you? No. Labrescu was the last name of the guy at Virginia Tech. The professor, Professor Labrescu. Am I not, am I not right? Oh, who uh, saved who saved the lives saved of the students, students barricaded by blocking the door. the door with the desk and standing in front of it. His name was Labrescu. I don't know if it was spelled exactly the same. It'd be interesting to see if it's a relative. But but in that article, <clears throat> this woman, um, she goes through all the arguments. She said, "I you know I started by any gun. I went through all the arguments. You can't you can't come out about it with any of these proposals that liberals are putting forward that really would make any difference." By the way, this guy passed all his checks, and um, you know all these weapons were legal. Conversion, you know, is this bump stock question. Uh, and buying the ammunition is legal. Um, so, you know, there you are. You, you, Chris, you, you were you're good enough to send me a whole bunch of a raft of these articles. Summarize the conclusions that, uh, that, are, that are in these articles. I don't think we need to go piece by piece, but you can, you can cite a couple of specifics. But it seems to me the, uh, the arguments, well, if you did this, then this would happen. I know from having debated this with Diane Feinstein on Meet the Press that this so-called assault weapons ban during the Clinton administration went, you know, six or eight or ten years, you know, didn't do anything. Right. Uh, but go ahead. Yeah, no, these are just some of the things she looked into. So she says she researched, you know, the tight gun laws in Britain, Australia, uh, and concluded that, here's her words, they didn't prove much about what America's policy should be. Neither nation experienced drops in mass shootings or other gun-related crime that could be attributed to their buybacks and bans, end quote. And then, you know, she looked at the whole thing about, quote, assault weapons, end quote, which are really just semi-automatic guns with, 
uh, accessories that you can add to them that anyone can do from their home like this guy did. Uh, so she talks about going through the research and, you know, the, the huge number of gun deaths in the U.S., uh, about two-thirds of those are suicides. Mm-hmm. Um, another huge chunk of those are gang-related. Um, and so she goes through in details and really, you know, the only things are tweaks around the edges, maybe this bump stock thing we're talking about. But there's no real meaningful yep. reform, and, and this is kind of implicit, except for, you know, confiscating everyone's guns, which you can't do with the Second Amendment, that would really make a difference. Yeah, right. Uh, there's that other stat that uh, John Lott, who seems to be the world's expert on this, used to be at Yale, but Yale couldn't tolerate his views, I guess, that he points out gun ownership has increased dramatically, but gun deaths have, have not. The, the mere fact of the presence of guns in more American homes and hands does not mean more American deaths by guns. And most of them come from those, uh, those sources you were talking about. Right. The debate will go. The debate will go on, but it seems to me lacking uh, a certain critical mass at this point. Plus, the politics of this: you have a few of these red state Democrat senators who are not joining the um, the Schumer Pelosi call. Go ahead. Right. Well, I'll just mention two things. Um, one, you had mentioned Virginia Tech. Uh, he killed thirty-two people with handguns. Two handguns, um, correct? Two handguns, and there's a great op-ed the Wall Street Journal did. Um, there's all this talk about assault weapons, but from 1999 to 2013, assault rifles were only used in 27% of mass shootings. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen the the cars, the trucks used in um, yeah. in Europe, and yes. that now we mm-hmm. now we find out that this guy had also the other reason he had broken out the second window was to fire at jet fuel tanks to try to explode them. I yeah. mean, he had explosives as well in his uh, ammonium nitrate or something right right so this is you know these tweaks may do things around the edges here but a person with this much time money commitment to um just causing mass death uh it's going to be very hard to do anything to to preemptively stop that and that's the shocking reality you spent your whole time planning such a thing in an open society um it um you know, it's very hard to stop. Socrates says in one of the dialogues, it's the Gorgias, I think, he says if a man <clears throat> decides to kill the, the king or the emperor um, and, and plans his whole life, he can do it. Maybe not. Maybe not now. The Secret Service, it's much, much, much harder. But we have had presidents shot. Um, that's for sure. Uh, if you dedicate your whole life to this a free country, access to weapons of all sorts, trucks and bombs and guns and knives. Maybe you can. <clears throat> you work your way in. Remember that uh, that movie, what was it, In the Line of Fire, the Clint Eastwood movie, John Malkovich. You guys with me, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. He plays this guy who wants to kill the president, and he gets a bunch of money and writes a huge check and gets a great seat at a table, you know, near where the president's speaking and brings in, gets through the metal detectors by having the plastic uh, uh, parts of a gun, which he assembles underneath the table during dinner uh, and then aims at the president and almost kills him, except for Clint. Right? Right. familiar. No, no, I know what you're talking about. Cultural literacy. Okay, you know the movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a little before my time, but I I know it. Well, what isn't? Yeah, all of you everything is. Before your time, basically. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right. 
but, but that's the, but the point is if you are a madman or um, a lunatic or a really evil person who you dedicate your whole life to this, it's pretty hard to stop. And Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein, I don't think are going to be able to, able to stop you. But maybe we can respond better. Maybe we respond quicker by a technology. Maybe you know. Maybe it's possible. Uh, there's a um, there's a prescient kind of um, appreciation uh, of of the facts of this of of, of what of what uh, Las Vegas particularly uh, affords someone aimed at a mass killing that uh, our friend Steve Wynn gave voice to. Here's an interview he did in September 2016 with John Ralston, who's the kind of political reporter of record um, in uh, in Las Vegas. For years, law enforcement officials have fretted about Las Vegas being a terror target. Chatter picked up by federal agencies, the internationally known skyline, the Sin City reputation. It was obvious, but not until recently did we learn that the most well-known Nevada casino mogul has taken steps to protect his patrons from a possible terrorist attack. And finally, the international situation uh, that has to do with the jihadi movement. Las Vegas is a target city. We have hardened the target at the win. This is the first time I've ever revealed this publicly. But we went, there's a division in the Marine Corps of special people that are specially trained to guard the embassies. That's a whole division with separate base, separate training. There are almost 40 of them at every opening of my building plain clothes, armed, on the lookout, changing shift and being relieved every two hours so they don't get bored. Steve Wynn said he started last December planning new, sophisticated, covert security measures, but that it only became operational a month ago. We have another group of a half a dozen SEALs Team 6 guys and CIA guys who are a counterterrorism unit that, 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 that relate on a daily basis to Homeland Security, the FBI, and Metro. My company has metal detectors and devices at every entrance of the building for employees and guests that are not visible to the public. We have done extraordinary things to make sure that we protect our employees and our guests in the hotel. Let me comment. Um, first of all, it's somewhat this is very serious, obviously, deadly serious stuff, but a somewhat lighter moment, as you all know, when we interview Steve Wynn, we often do it in person. Chris, I don't think you and I walked through those doors of that hotel to interview Steve again without thinking, looking for some plain clothes, <laughs> Navy SEALs or special ops Marines, correct? You see these guys, but uh, that's Steve Wynn, and he, you know, he takes care. Plus the metal detectors. I guess it, it uh, maybe doesn't detect, uh, you know, uh, the shiny coins or your, or your, or your, your keys, but, um, try to carry in that, that kind of number of guns that the killer carried. I'm not going to say his name. You know, my practice on that folks. I'm not going to give him more publicity. Um, and, um, imagine those detectors would know it and they're not visible to the eye, which is interesting. Let's go to the part, if we can, Lou, where he talks about the, um, 
the spaces of Las Vegas, if you will, and the kind of activities that take place in Vegas. This is the real prescience of when. I guess my blessing and my curse is that I, I think of myself as someone with imagination. So I can imagine terrible things happening. You think Vegas is a really bad target? And I don't want terrible things to happen in Las Vegas, and I certainly don't want anything terrible to happen to the people in my building, whether they're my fellow employees or my guests. And so I think I'm, I've got the da-da gene. I'm responsible for the win. But you think Las Vegas is a bigger target than maybe other... I mean, I've always thought since 9-11... FBI and Homeland Security believe that it right. is, John. Yeah. Wynn says the Sin City image is only part of it. You know why that we're a big target? It isn't just the the amorality of it in terms of the, maybe what some Muslim might think. You know, the, the, the Quran might be against what we do or our lifestyle of drinking and partying that the city stands for. But what Las Vegas does have, like New York, but more so, is great concentrations of people, like a football game. But we have all these arenas and these showrooms, these massive amounts of people on the Strip. 43 million people a year, 800-odd thousand a week. Wynn says he's not taking any chances, and he has a simple message for would-be terrorists. But I know that uh, anybody that thinks they're going to do it at, in, on the property of Winter Encore is going to have a short, brief life. So Steve Wynn talks about massive amounts of people on the Strip. That was what that concert was, massive amount of people on the Strip. Prescient guy. And um, pretty good advertisement for his hotels, you know, pretty good, especially in light of, of, light of what just happened. But, um, you know, I guess he's sort of answering the first question I asked, which is the technology question. He's using the technology and he's using human know-how and human uh, beings to uh, prevent this sort of thing from ever happening. Any comment, Chris? Yeah, I, th I think you're right there that here are the possible solutions, uh, security, technology, um, you know, these, if they had been in place at Mandalay Bay, would they have caught this guy? I don't know. Um, but hopefully, hopefully they would have. Um, I don't know if it's surefire. It's an absolute safeguard. Uh, but these, I mean, this is going to become the reality now. People are already talking about, are you going to any hotel in Las Vegas? Uh, this past week, there's 10, 15, 20 minute lines to get in because they've installed metal detectors. They have wands now. And I'm afraid this is the new reality. And, you know, we've talked about this so many times, but there are so many, uh, you know, what um, intelligence officials refer to as soft targets in the U.S., um, you know, malls, uh, yep. you know, obviously schools, sporting events, uh, sporting events so sure. many soft targets. You know, we saw this in Europe uh, where they target soccer matches, where they target tourists on bridges. Um, there are so many potential possibilities. It just, um, it just bewilders festival. you sometimes. Just, just think of the word festival. And you right. know, put any word in front of it, the Bluegrass Festival, the Country Music Festival, the 50s Festival, the Flower Festival. The, you know, Americans like to do that, and they like to celebrate, and they like to see other people. Um, <clears throat> markets, open-air markets, malls, no more concentrations of people. No, no, that's what we say. We're not going to give it up. All right, I, 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 I would love to hear your reaction to all this and any of this. I want to talk about our president, though, again, for a couple of minutes, um, particularly in light of these visits. I, I think we can put it in the rearview mirror, but a lot of criticism from the left of Port, on the president of Puerto Rico. But I think it, again, I, I think like this move on 
gun control. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, it'll be absorbed and to the bloodstream and agreed to by the nodding heads on the left. But, you know, there's dust up with the mayor of San Juan who said, you know, we're dying. Or I guess Paul Krugman of the New York Times wrote, you know, there's cholera all over Puerto Rico. Thanks, Trumpy. Um, well, the mayor had the week before said that, you know, FEMA was doing a very good job, Mayor San Juan. And then uh, when she did these comments about, you know, the federal government's failed this and need help, it was, it was the tableau was the, the picture was interesting because she was standing in front of huge uh, platforms of water and other supplies, just uh, you know, like in a warehouse of of needed supplies when she's making this complaint. But uh, the governor, a Democrat and uh, another very progressive mayor, left progressive quotes um, in Puerto Rico, praised the efforts. Um, I was uh, impressed with Geraldo Rivera, whom I know some, um, who was there. I guess his father's Puerto Rican, um, and he uh, was there and said, "This is fake news. This stuff about you know people being really unhappy with the federal government." And that, you know, the mayor of San Juan does not represent the views of most Puerto Ricans. And I think that's probably true. Um, remember, Puerto Rico's a shaky place, shaky place to begin with, uh, economically shaky. You know, we've had this debate about whether to bail them out or not. And, you know, a lot of infrastructure problems and so on. That's going to remain shaky. And tourism is, I guess, their main industry, Chris, isn't it? Right. Yep. And um, you're not going to see a lot of tourists heading down that way anytime soon. I want to come back to some things that are in the air out there. President, uh, back to politics, if you will. President said, you know, to the Puerto Rican community, you know, you've blown a hole in our budget. I think he meant it in a compassionate way. A joke, a New Yorker kind of joke. Holy smokes, man, you really broke the bank with you guys. But um, it wasn't meant to complain to them. It was to state a reality to them. But... Um, yeah, it did take some money, and that means not money for other things. But I want to come back to where I was at the beginning. Uh, he's been to Texas, he's been to Florida, he's been to Puerto Rico, he's been to Las Vegas. Apart from the toll that might take on him and his thinking and his energies, doesn't seem like it's diminished his energies much. Um, there's a, there's a toll taken on policy. As he's doing this, what happens to tax reform? What happens to the other initiatives? What's going on with North Korea? I mean, everybody wanted the president to be in these places because we've gotten used to the idea of this this role for the presidency. But there is a toll. There is a there's a price to be paid. Um, you know, we we said I think in a couple of podcasts ago, really important for the president to sell this tax reform proposal himself. And. Um, Time taken on other things means he can't. Not that he shouldn't have done these, but there is a price. Chris, any comment? Yeah, you think back to the presidency of George W. Bush and how you know he came in with an agenda focused on cutting taxes, uh, some education reform, and it quickly became a presidency yeah. dominated by national security. Yeah. And so these events are... Um, just really blotting out the sun when it comes to terms to, when it comes to domestic politics, and so I, you know, I think Trump's done a a good job adapting to that. He's really had to take on the role of uh, you know comforter in chief rather than commander in chief, 
Um, and I think that's the reality of the modern day presidency is that you can't control what's going to happen and he's going to have to turn his attention to this. And it's another reason, you know, I don't want to harp on this too much, but the Republicans should have had their ducks in a row as soon as those, as soon as those votes were counted on election night, they should have had their ducks in a row and been ready to go with this because political opportunities like this only come around once in a generation and they can be short and fleeting. And you, and you mean Obamacare as well as... Uh, I mean Obamacare, tax reform, tax reform. Te- whatever it was, they should have been ready. Yeah, part of this was, I'm sorry to say, in their heart of hearts, a lot of these guys didn't think that Trump would win. You know? No. Like, like no. most people. Like most people. I don't fault them for being like most people. Um, I mean, I had my worries and thought, well, you know, he may not, but I still, you know, <clears throat> place bets that he would and uh, supported him. Okay. Um well, listen, I, I think, you know, I get back to the agenda. Um, I, kudos to the president, the first lady. I think you've done very well, conducted yourself very well, acted like a commander-in-chief. I know the job of consoler-in-chief has now become part of the description, and I think just, just fine on that score. And we'll see what uh, else brings. But now back to budget, please. Back to North Korea. Back to getting out of this Iran deal, please. Mr. President, did I correctly hear on this, by the way, Chris, uh, General Mattis say to a committee that he, he would not scrap the deal? Did you recall hearing that? I did hear that. I did. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly why he said that. Yeah. Uh, you know, there have been some people who are saying, let's wait for them to violate the deal and then we'll have reason to scrap it. Um, but we can look into that more. Yeah, we will look into that more. And the, if the president's able to stay off the road, um, maybe you can talk to Mattis and get this thing straightened out. I think it's a very high priority. And I know uh, folks like our friend Senator Cotton think it is uh, as well. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, folks, given the um, events in Las Vegas, I think it's particularly appropriate to hear from our friend Steve Wynn again. Um, <clears throat> in, the, in this uh, discussion with Steve, he talks about how he believes how well the president is handling events. This uh, took place before Las Vegas. And um, interesting perspective on Donald Trump. You're not going to hear everywhere and from everybody. That's for sure. So so listen closely to this right to the end. Steve Wynn, of course, is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts, um, home to some of the best five-star resorts in the world uh, and getting better. Um, Steve's also the new finance chair of the Republican National Committee, and he's helping the RNC crush the DNC in fundraising. Uh, the other part of Steve's role with the RNC is to help get Republicans to a filibuster, filibuster-proof 60 Republican majority in the Senate. Then we'll be able to get any bill through Congress without Democrats blocking it. It's a huge task, but if anyone's capable of it, it's Steve Wynn. In this segment, I begin by asking Steve, how are our chances uh, at getting to 60 Republicans in the Senate after the 2018 and 2020 elections? Here is Steve. It's an ambitious thing to do. Sure. Uh, We've got two states, uh, Arizona and Nevada, that are challenged. I don't have any idea what Senator Flake is going to do. Uh, He seems to have painted himself into a political corner from which there is no escape. Uh, It was was hard to do, but uh, unless he's Houdini, he's he's out, I think. Dean Heller will be fine in Nevada. It will. will. Yes, I think so. Uh, we've got a number of states where the president won by very, very strong margins. North Dakota, mm-hmm. Montana, mm-hmm. 
Ohio by seven or nine, Indiana, Missouri. And we've got candidates that are really terrific. Uh, Governor Scott is running in Florida. Imagine this. For, for seven years, this guy came into office, this governor, sold the state's airplane, kept his own airplane, and with his own money, flew around the state for seven years, Monday through Friday, visiting two cities a day. Yeah. Actually did this. Two cities a day yeah. for seven years. Yeah. There isn't anybody in the state of Florida that doesn't know Rick Scott. I know. I know. His race against Nelson looks to me like a beauty. We're loving that race in Florida. Okay. We're loving West Virginia. Joe Manchin's a nice guy, but he votes with Schumer. He votes with Pelosi. He was there when they did all that damage to the people in West Virginia. I think that West Virginia is in play. I think Indiana is in play. I think Missouri is absolutely in play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Ohio is in play. North Dakota. Uh, what happens with the, the Democrats? When they think the public is looking, they make speeches to sound conservative. But the minute the, the yeah. voters look away, they vote the other way. Yeah, that's exactly High right. Camp is that kind of a person. And Tester in Montana, Senator Tester, the Democrat, the minute the, the Montanans look away, I know. he goes liberal on them. I know, I know. And he doesn't deal with the problem of health care, the tax system, or any of those other things. You mentioned Rick Scott, uh, Steve, and um, I think it would be an affectation. Terrific fellow. Yeah, I, I agree. I've, I've always liked him. I remember my first conversation with him was when he called me up and he said, hey, you were the drug czar. Is there anything wrong with conditioning state payments, welfare, and other things on people being clean of drugs? I said, oh, I think it makes good sense. Anyway, caught a lot of flack for that. Very practical-minded man. But I, th I, I want to shift slightly. I want to stay in the political realm generally. But be an affectation for us, for you and me, not to mention when you talk about the afflictions of the American people, uh, the hurricanes and the floods, um, and some of the leadership shown here by guys like Scott and Abbott. But how about our president? He did this pretty daggone well. I'm not just talking about penning a check for a million dollars. I think he handled this very well. What do you think? Uh, first of all, uh, Florida, Florida has been preparing and had experience like this. Mm -hmm. And they had an organization in that state that has been enhanced by the leadership of Governor Scott. And he's a businessman, and he knew how to marshal all of those assets and bring them to bear. I listened to him on, on TV. I, I watched him, and I heard him rattle off with the kind of discipline that only a real, a real experienced business guy could. All of the steps that were being taken. And he had the ability to communicate on that on that basis it was a it was an example of an experienced leader a person that knew how to do it in action greg abbott was the same way both states are very lucky in one respect in the misery of these natural catastrophes they had good leadership those leaders yeah and they brought the experience of the states to full power president trump recognizing the suffering, and he is, after all, partly a Floridian. He jumped on this understanding because he's a guy that can empathize pretty easily. He's a simpatico kind of guy in person 
and up close. He saw that this was a, a place for him to be. This was a time for him to be on the scene. This was a time for him to show his caring and his consideration. Uh, Donald Trump, among all the things that he has been described as being, is in fact a very warm and cuddly person among all the people who are friendly with him. And <laughs> I love that adjective. Well, cuddly. he is actually. Uh, he's very attentive to friends. He's, he's, a, he's a huggy kind of guy. And so this brought that part out in him, his soft side. A lot of us say, show more of that. Yeah. Show more of that, Mr. President. You do, don't you? You, show, you say that, don't you? Uh, all of us do. Yeah. Uh, but he, he's struggling with the, the antagonism of the Democrats, mm-hmm. the, the outrageous hypocrisy of the attacks on him personally, the, the, the totally swollen, bloated hypocrisy of the desperation of the Democrats at his victory and their loss of power. And he's struggling with that, and that doesn't bring out the best in him because he, he fires back. But this, the hurricanes and the flooding, that touched him where he lives. And uh, you yeah. get to see more of what Trump's really like that way. And, and it was a good thing that, that, that people could see that. And I'm glad <clears throat> that he turned his back on all of the phony attacks and everything else yeah. and made that his priority. How about this insight into the American <clears throat> people, too? You know, uh, just when uh, I think some of the real leftists, the Antifa crowd and stuff, were getting ready to say that, you know, not only white supremacists and Ku Klux Klaners, but Trump supporters, you know, are, 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 are a big part of the problem. Well, we see a state that went strongly for Trump, like Texas, and we see the character of those American people. That was really quite a demonstration, wasn't it? Uh, it was a master beautiful. class. That's what we're really like. We're yeah. the most charitable country yeah. in yeah. the world. Yeah. We're community by community, company by company, big business, small business, religious church groups, synagogues, everybody takes care of their neighbors in this country way more than we're ever given credit for because most of the people that engage in this charity in this philanthropic and charitable activity on a community and and neighborhood level they don't brag about it they don't go on cable news and and have a group of talking heads mm-hmm. you know if if you if you just look at the the the, the television and the social media the people that are dominating that are basically folks who want to be heard and feel like talking about everything that they think is important. The fact of the matter is the compassion, the charity, the gestures that are made by citizens in every neighborhood, in every organization in America, that, that compassion where people are caring for each other, that doesn't get on social media. People that do that maybe don't even have a Twitter account. They're older folks. They're not on uh, Facebook. But And so we hear about the side of the story of the people who really have an ax to grind. But we really don't hear from the people who are doing it. Yeah. 
But we saw Texas. Them. You could see it. You could see it. Yeah. That, all of a sudden, the television cameras turned on neighborhood and and social compassion in real time. Yeah. And that's more the story of America, highlighted by these catastrophes than any of the other crap you see you hear on television, especially from the the professional specialty groups. Wow. Uh, very interesting, folks. Huh? Another great segment with Wynn. Steve Winnie's exactly right. Watching Americans in Florida and Texas and now Puerto Rico and now Las Vegas come together, help each other, comfort each other, save each other. Um, this has reaffirmed to many of us that we're not as divided as many in the press would like us to think. We'll continue the rest of my conversation with Steve next week and we'll continue reflecting on these things and hope to hear from you. Um, thanks for listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Um, tell your friends. We love your company. We'd like even more. Thanks. Thanks.